Hey everybody, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Today I will be talking to Jason Thacker, who is the author of the book, The Age of AI. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, and it's a conversation I'm sure you'll enjoy. Uh, Just a reminder about some of our resources. Uh, We've had some uh, Advent songs that our way worship has put together, and we've also had uh, an Advent Bible study, and so uh, we have a landing page for all of that to make it a little bit uh, more uh, accessible. If you go to rwm.org/Christmas, uh, you'll just see a lot of our Christmas resources that are um, put on that one page, that landing page for you. That should make it a little more accessible. Um, also, uh, next week on this podcast, we will have. Uh, Susan Needler and John Spencer, and we will be talking specifically about distraction and boredom. As we said, this season eight of the podcast, looking at teens and technology, we're trying to get at this in in a bunch of different angles. And I know John and and Susan have both done a lot of reading and research in that area. And so I know this will be helpful uh, for you guys. So that'll be uh, next week, which will be episode 317. Uh, But today we're talking to Jason Thacker. And so here's my conversation with him. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Uh, Today, I welcome Jason Thacker to the podcast. Uh, Jason, good to have you. Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So Jason uh, serves as the Chair of Research and Technology Ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, That's a little bit of a mouthful, huh? It is a little bit. (laughs) Uh, The ERLC. Uh, He is married uh, to Dory, and they have two sons. He is a graduate of the University of Tennessee and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He's written for the Gospel Coalition and is the author of uh, The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity, which is by Zondervan. And that's going to be the focus of our discussion today. Um, Jason, before we talk about AI and and your book, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the ERLC as well as what you do uh, as the chair of research. Yeah. So as you said, we do have a really long name that can be a little confusing, but we essentially are the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And what that means is that we focus on educating and equipping the local church to engage them in the most pressing issues of the day, issues of pro-life concern, families, ministry, church leadership, issues of politics and how we live in this world in a very secular society, Um, but even uh, issues related to technology like we're going to talk about today. Um, Our goal is to help educate and equip the local church to engage these issues from a gospel-centered perspective, uh, glorifying God and helping to reach people for Christ. Yeah, that's excellent. We appreciate your work there, especially, you know, again, with something like AI, but something with your role, I mean, technology. I mean, there's so much that Christians are are struggling to deal with, and it seems like there's something new each week that we're having to be aware of or, or think about. So, um, I, I appreciate you helping us uh, think about that today. Um, our listeners know that this is season eight of the podcast, and we were talking about teens and technology. And Jason, I reached out to you because I saw that you wrote on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Um, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that you that, that wrote it? It was. That's okay. And, uh, and then I saw from your bio that you wrote the book, The Age of AI. And so I knew you could help us think about something that I feel like Christians, including myself, often aren't considering, um, you know, AI just sounds like something kind of way, way off. 
Um, and let me just say from the outset, this is an excellent book that Christians need to pre to pick up. And I know I'm going to run out of time to ask you all the questions uh, that I want to ask because there's so much that you bring up in this book. Um, and really what I want to do, I was going to start off by just mentioning the cover of your book. Um, it's a very cool, catchy cover. And then as I started to look at it, I noticed uh, it's a little creepy as well. <laughs> there's there's a face on the cover that's not always, uh, it doesn't just jump out at, at first. And so just curious, did you assist with the cover design of that book? And what would you think? Of I it? gave a little direction, um, but the team at Zondervan did such a fabulous job on this book. Really thankful for the entire team, especially the design team who took kind of took the extra effort uh, with the cover. But yeah, I originally had mentioned not doing something really dark and dreary, are kind of eerie looking. And then the, I, they sent us, they sent me four or five different cover designs and this one really stood out to me. And it was ironic that it was actually a little dark and eerie, <laughs> um, but I just really love kind of the subtlety of the face. Mm -hmm. You don't really see it initially. Mm -hmm. um, and often when we're talking about artificial intelligence, it does kind of come across, as you said, very futuristic and kind of far off, but there's almost this uh, temptation to kind of humanize our technology. And so that's really what I think they were really drawing out of the cover design, but I think they did a really fabulous job on it. Yeah. And when I say creepy, I mean it in the best sense of the the word. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a great cover. So those listening definitely pick up a copy, but at least look up uh, the cover. Um, so Jason, look, I, I thought it would be helpful just to start by defining artificial intelligence. Uh, could you help us have somewhat of a working definition? And I, and I know in your book, you get into kind of AI in the narrow sense and the general sense, and maybe even talk about that as well. Yeah. And I think that often when people hear artificial intelligence, we immediately think kind of red-eyed robots who are going to come steal all of our jobs or like killer robots. We think of tech, these technologies as something far off and futuristic, something that we really don't have to engage with or deal with every single day. But reality is, is within feet of you, maybe even attached to your body in terms of like a smartwatch or something, you have smart devices and smart devices. The smart element is artificial intelligence. So whether it's a smart appliance, whether it's a smartphone or tablet, it's a Nest thermostat on your wall. But even a lot of the things that are driving our social media feeds, these algorithms, that's another way to talk about artificial intelligence, algorithms or our banking or even getting into more kind of large scale artificial intelligence that is used in military or war or in public policy. Artificial intelligence is really driving almost all modern technologies in some form or fashion. And so that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to educate and equip churches and Christians to engage a lot of these technologies now, because often what happens within the local church and really just kind of in Christianity as a whole, we're often lagging behind a lot of the innovations and a lot of the uh, inventions that come along over the last hundred years or so where the church has to play catch up to a lot of these social issues. And so what I wanted to do was to kind of introduce a lot of these technologies and a lot of these terms to the local church so that we can engage them now and proactively to help our people think through these things as they're being pressed and having to deal with a lot of the questions of what is, what's the role of social media in our family? What, how should we be thinking about how these algorithms are creating these personalized experiences, even to bigger questions about, is there an element of, you know, what happens if a machine or a robot becomes equal or equivalent to what it means to be human is a lot of these kind of general kind of fundamental questions that we 
engage with with artificial intelligence. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to kind of engage that because there's so much hype around artificial intelligence. You see news stories of these red-eyed robots that are really ready to come take your jobs or take you to war. Um, and there's a lot of fear. And so that's kind of when, and when I talk about artificial intelligence, that's typically one of the two reactions I get is either a fear of I'm really scared and nervous. I don't know what the future holds or kind of an apathy of not really something I need to engage with or think about right now. But both of those reactions, if you think about AI and really just a lot of emerging technology from a Christian worldview, it's something that we can engage in and use as helpful tools that we can help to glorify God and love our neighbor. But they also can have some very dehumanizing effects, some effects on our humanity or on our families or on our person that we really don't think about. And so that's really what I wanted to do was to proactively equip the church to engage a lot of these issues and get down to what AI is, which artificial intelligence is simply kind of non-biological intelligence or a computer that's able to perform complex tasks uh, such that aren't just like a calculation of one plus one equals two. But adding in a lot of variables, you know, a simple example would be something like voice recognition on Siri. It's it's able to interpret what you're saying and turn it into text. Well, that's an AI or automatically changing the temperature on your Nest thermostat when you wake up in the mornings. That's artificial intelligence or curating a lot of our online social media feeds and putting content that it thinks we'll like or that thinks we'll want to engage in. That's artificial intelligence making a lot of those decisions where a human isn't either able to do that or wouldn't be fast enough or it wouldn't even be efficient for a human to really make a lot of those play by play or real time decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, as, as you say, AI, I, I can't help but think of, you know, science fiction movies. And we just think of something that even seems just, you know, hundreds of years down the road, something that we won't deal with. But, but as you're pointing out, I mean, it's in our every day. And mm-hmm. I, I want to be clear as we, we talk about this. I mean, you say you're, you're clear in your book and we've said on this podcast, I mean, technology is a good thing. And there are so many benefits uh, to technology and ways in which Christians should be utilizing technology. And so we're, we're going to get into some of the negative for sure, but maybe starting with some of the positive, as you say, there are ways in which churches can utilize AI. Now, what would be some of the maybe helpful ways in which churches can begin to, to utilize AI, either you know in a congregation, in a service, or just uh, keeping up with their, their people, you know, on their roles as well? Uh, what, what are some ways in which you would suggest Yeah, and a lot of these things you're already doing, and you probably don't even realize it. I mean, using artificial intelligence, as I said, from a thermostat to a smartphone uh, to using social media, you're already utilizing a lot of these AI systems or algorithms. And so one of the challenges for the church is to think about how these technologies, one, are made, um, what kind of values go into that, but then also thinking about in which ways are these technologies shaping us for good and for bad? I mean, we can use, as as I argue in the book, when we engage really any issue, uh, but even specifically with technology, we need to kind of get back to a lot of the fundamental questions that really have kind of not plagued humanity, but something that we've always thought about and dealt with as humanity from the very beginning is, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? What does it mean to be human? Um, And then what is technology? What's its proper role in our life? And I think AI presents a unique challenge uh, to the church because there's a lot of 
more human-like elements as part of these technologies, where these technologies are so advanced and are doing things that really, you know, even 10 years ago, we would have thought were science fiction and futuristic and never going to happen. But now these technologies are able to do that. And so, you know, everyday practical kind of things is you're already using you're already using artificial intelligence probably not only in your services but in your communication practices there's been a lot of questions about should we be using facial recognition in our churches um, to be able to one be able to identify potential threats or dangers within our communities but then also anything questioning like new member tracking or knowing who's there and kind of attendance type of thing so there's kind of a lot of complex questions because often when we come to technology we just say well is it is there something useful that it does and we say yes then we adopt it well there's a problem with that is because so much of these technologies are complex uh, they really challenge a lot of our fundamental beliefs about the universe and who we are as humans but even they have these subtle kind of progressive effects on how they change us or shape us as humans um, and that can sound really scary and overwhelming to people, but we need to take a step back before we just adopt any technology uh, very quickly and kind of ask some of these fundamental questions. And then as we move forward, continue to evaluate their use, because as you said, there are a lot of good uses to these tools, but often there are a lot of these subtle dangers that come along the way. So as Christians created in God's image, we are given the ability to create these type of technologies and tools, and we should utilize them to the fullest potential. As um, Jesus says in Matthew 22, is that we're to love God and love our neighbor. That's really encapsulates the entire ethic of the Bible. And we can use technology to love God and love our neighbor. But subtly, these technologies can also shape us and change us, um, make us less human in that sense, not of um, being created in God's image, but make us less like humans, acting like who we are and being able to treat each other uh, as fellow image bearers, but they can also have kind of negative effects on our society and how they shape us and form us and change us. Um, and so that's really what we want to do in this book is specifically kind of engaging and equipping families and churches to step into a lot of these hard questions and kind of get categories for how these technologies are built, how they're used, but also how they're shaping us as humans. Yeah, and no, I like how you bring that up of, how they shape us and and you you emphasize uh, you know they do this in in subtle ways and you know i just think of our children growing up in this generation to where it's just normal to talk to your television or normal to just talk to your phone and you know i can remember a time when you had to get a phone bolted to your car and that was mm -hmm. kind of the only phone that you you had and so just to think that it's normal for them and it's already shaping them at this young age and so it's it's hard to measure that. But I know one helpful issue that you bring up has to deal with identity. And you discuss how AI is, is impacting our identity. And so I'd love for you to, to share that a little bit of how AI is, um, is impacting humanity's identity. I mean, specifically, as you think of jobs and things like that, I know you bring up some interesting uh, subjects there. Yeah, and specifically when it comes to AI, AI really doesn't or cause us to ask new questions of humanity and how we use these tools, but really causing us to ask a lot of the age-old questions in light of new opportunities. That's what these technologies are doing. They're expanding what we can do, and often people step into these things and are not maybe overly thoughtful about how we adopt these new technologies. And so one of the kind of fundamental core issues of technology in general not just AI, but even specifically with AI, 
is that these technologies have started to take on certain human characteristics, things that historically humans were only able to do, uh, where you have these technologies that can think or process or visually recognize or hear. Um, and while they don't understand what they're doing, this is what's called narrow AI. I kind of talk about that a little bit in the book, that there's a concept of narrow AI, which is every AI system you have now or that we utilize now is called narrow, which means it's used for a very narrow specific task, meaning the AI or algorithm that controls Siri on my phone isn't able to drive my car. And the thing that might be able to drive my car in the future isn't able to recognize images online or curate a social media feed. So they're just very narrow. They can do like kind of one task. And this next level is called general uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, or general AI. And what general is, it's not something we're not even sure we can create this. This is a huge debate within the technology community and specifically the AI community is, are we able to create a general level intelligence? Well, there's only one general level intelligence that humanity has ever known, and that's us. Meaning that we have the creative abilities, the use to be able to know that we exist, uh, to be able to process and think and think in very, very complex ways. And then you have this kind of next level, which is incredibly futuristic and sci-fi sounding is super AI, super intelligence, uh, which is it's past AGI or artificial general intelligence called super intelligence. And what that is, is there's really only one super intelligence that we ever have experienced. And that's God himself, uh, this kind of omnipotent power, uh, this godlike ability. And so that's a dream of a lot of people within the AI community, but it's not. As I argue in the book, it's not really realistic. One, because we're not even sure, and I would argue we can't actually create a general level intelligence or a human level intelligence uh, with you know, silicon and si these type of substrates or these type of technologies that we create with our hands because that's who we are. There's a God, a creator God who made everything and he made us in his image, but we have certain limitations as, huma as humans. But one of the kind of identity crisis that I talk about in the book is the way that these technologies, because they take on these human-like elements in very narrow ways, we trick ourselves by humanizing these machines. It's kind of what we did with the cover, that little play is you almost have this human face, these human elements where we name, we talk about Siri and give her a name and then talk, start talking about her as her or she or he or it. And we kind of personify these type of machines because of their abilities. But then at the same time, we're actually dehumanizing ourselves because we don't really understand what it means to be created in God's image and what that really, what that impact uh, has not only on how we treat each other as image bearers, but also kind of the proper role of technology in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that just identity crisis, as you put it, is a major aspect to this um, because it's, you know, Ben Sass and his book, Them, which is a very helpful book I've talked about on this podcast before. I know you quote Ben Sass in your book and he also mm -hmm. endorsed it. Um, he, he brought up in, in his book, Them, that uh, driver is the world's number one occupation that mm -hmm. you know, across the world, it is, the, you know, the number one job is, is driver and automated cars are going to greatly impact that. And, you know, they don't know, um, there's going to be some good obviously with that, but also some bad. I mean, he brings up ATMs, uh, in, you know, banks and how tellers kind of thought they were going to be without a job at some point, but this kind of forced, uh, tellers to, um, be more competitive, to become loan officers and things like that. And so we know is 
new technologies are introduced and that there are opportunities with that. There are also dangers. And so maybe as we're kind of staying on this identity crisis specifically, maybe talk about some of the opportunities there as well as some of the dangers too. Yeah. I mean, you even think just in terms of efficiency or manufacturing is we're able to produce more um, because machines don't have to sleep. Uh, They can continually work or they can continually process or they can continually um, curate our online platforms or you know, even from like a predictive text feature, which I really love in part of my Gmail is being able, as I'm typing out something, it saves me a little time because mm-hmm. maybe it tries to complete a thought or finishes a sentence or um, corrects that word, like the autocorrect feature. When I'm totally just botch of spelling of a word, it kind of comes in and changes it automatically for me. It doesn't do it perfect every time, but it can save a lot of time. And so you think in terms of manufacturing or uh, robots and automation is you it's able to save a lot of time and reality is is that a lot of the predicted job loss that we hear about with artificial intelligence there are going to be jobs lost Um, but there are also going to be jobs that are partially automated where you may it could be where i'm not in the future booking my own calendar appointments or things like that because you can have an automated system do that and so i think that's going to greatly impact certain jobs um, it's going to ch- revolutionize and change other jobs, but it's also going to be able to create other jobs that we might not even know of or think about where we now have software engineers or AI ethicists and things like this where you don't historically think that, oh, we would have that type of position or currently have it, but maybe in the future we will um, because of the new kind of unique job environment that a lot of these technologies create. But the danger is, is that we can create these technologies as a replacement for another fellow image bearer. And I think that's what I want to really highlight uh, that I do in the book is talking about how work isn't just something we do. It's not a product of the fall per se. It's not something that we just have to do. It's something that we're created to do. We're created to work. So Christians don't look forward to a jobless future of pure leisure. Uh, kind of like that movie Wally, my son. I have a four-year-old son who really loves the movie Wally, like where we're floating around on those little beds, being eating and watching TV all day long. That's not really the future that one we should be looking forward to, but two that we're even created to long for. We're created to work. It's part of our natural abilities is created in God's image. And so when we approach these technologies that really will revolutionize the workforce, uh, really alter the way that uh, the jobs that our children and our children's children inherit or look up to or aspire to, is we should be thinking about how these technologies are impacting those things for good, creating new opportunities, um, but also ways that they can be dehumanizing or cause us to believe that our value and our worth and our dignity is tied to what we do rather than who we are. And what I mean by that, it's tied to what we do is in you're only valuable if you can contribute to society. And you see a lot of these arguments with issues of euthanasia, thinking that when you're older, you're not valuable or you're quote unquote worthless. And so your life isn't worth living. Well, if you come about this from a Christian perspective of humanity created in the image of God, you are not what you do. You are who you are created as. You're created as a fellow image bearer. And so no matter your worth, no value, no matter your contribution to society, you are infinitely valuable and worthy because you're created in God's image, just like the rest of us. 
And so I think that kind of revolutionizes and changes the way that we think about work is that we're to love God and love our fellow human being because they're created in God's image. But two, we're also created to work. And so how do we utilize these technologies to aid our work and make our work easier and more fruitful and allow us to do other creative things that maybe we wouldn't be able to do if we were tied down to a lot of the more mundane tasks that these computer technologies can take on for us? Yeah, that's so good because you do, you point out, and I mean, we've kind of been saying this since we've started this interview, but how it's becoming more and more difficult to answer the question, what does it mean to be human in -hmm. a sense that it's just becoming more confusing as AI is being introduced. And so that is going to be a question that we need to continually wrestle with as as Christians and also be equipping the church to answer that. And as you've just said, I mean, to, to see the significance of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Um, Jason, as you talked from, from the outset of just kind of Alexa and uh, forms of uh, uh, AI that are, are more common, you, you say in your book that it's estimated that 43.7 million adults in the U.S. own some kind of smart speaker, if that's you know Google Home, Amazon Alexa, Apple HomePod. Um, and you go on to say that it's been reported that Google and Amazon may actually lose money on these devices but part of the reason why they sell them so cheap is to gather data on us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, it, it, it seems like an obvious question. Should we be concerned about this, but also kind of how should Christians exercise discernment here? Because again, so many own uh, some an Alexa or, or something, but if it's gathering data on us, how should a Christian utilize this technology and also be discerning there? Yeah, and I think that's a really good question, a really important question. I dedicate a whole chapter in the book to data and privacy um, because those are – we're encountering with a lot of these new technologies questions of not only can we do something, but should we? And that's really the ethics question. Ethics isn't some kind of separate field that you have to take in college or later on in your job to take like a business business ethics class. The reality is, is ethics is just discipleship. It's this idea of should we do something, not can we, but should we? And so you get into a lot of these complex kind of ethical questions. And when it comes to data and privacy, we should know that every modern technology is not only creating data, a plethora and kind of an overload of information and data, but then also it's continually capturing data on us. Now, whether that data is utilized is a different question because often a lot of these technologies capture more data than the company can ever hope to think about or even try to use. But the idea is let's store up as much data as absolute possible because we might be able to utilize it one day. And so while this might sound kind of far off and maybe something real scary kind of out of a sci-fi thriller or something about how this data is being used and a lot of these privacy implications, you think of some of the benefits of it. So if I buy a book, if you go and on Amazon right now and buy my book, it very well might start recommending other type of technology or AI books. Well, those recommendation engines or what's up next, or you go on Netflix and it said, you liked this, so you might like this, this, and this. That's AI. That's just another way that artificial intelligence is built into so many of our technologies. And there can be really great things because I can buy a book online or buy a product and it recommends something else. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good book. I never had heard about that one before. And so there are some kind of freeing opportunities um, or opportunities to be able to find something new or discover something that we didn't even know is there. And so those are some good uses of the data. But then you think of how is that data being used? How is it being captured? Do I know 
that that data is being captured and that gets into a lot of the questions of data privacy, um, how these technologies are being used. Um, because as Christians, we need to be thinking through a lot of these technologies as there are companies involved. Uh, they're trying to make money and often they take a lot of the data that we have and they turn it into a predictive product and then they sell that prediction in terms of ad, they monetize things. That's another way to talk about it. Or you think of uh, if you've ever sat around your phone and then you're talking, one day I was talking about a local barbecue restaurant with my best friend here and we were talking about how much we really wanted to go. And about 10 or 15 minutes later, I was on Instagram and I was scrolling up and I saw an ad for that barbecue restaurant. Well, is my phone listening to me? Yes, it quite literally is. And not only does that maybe is a little scary for most people, you actually agreed to a lot of these things when you hit those uh, terms and conditions where you scroll to the bottom as quick as possible and just hit agree. So you can keep going and download your app or uh, kind of install that program or whatever is a lot of these terms and conditions. We're turning over a lot of our kind of rights to a lot of this data and this property um, and the ways that we're utilizing them. But all that being said, a lot of these things there's good uses for. And so it's a really complex question when it comes to not only what type of data is being collected, but then how it's being used. And that's what I try to talk about in the book as this isn't super scary and kind of overwhelming, but there really are some alarming questions and kind of issues here about how this data is being used to in many ways, shape us and form us and kind of monetize off of us, encouraging us. That's kind of that uh, story or that article that I wrote at the Gospel Coalition on the social dilemma, which if you haven't seen it with your family, I encourage you to check that uh, that documentary out. I don't agree with everything, everything in it, but it does raise some really good challenging questions about how does this social environment that we live in, not just social media, but a lot of these social technologies and tools, shape us and form us as human beings, encourage us to desire towards covetedness of wanting things that we shouldn't have or don't need, um, or treating each other as simple tools or pieces of data or just avatars on an, an online environment rather than a flesh and blood human being created in God's image. And so there's just so many complex questions that what I want to do in the book is to really encourage people to have some categories of how to interpret these things, but then also some practical tips and kind of next steps to start questioning these things in your own life and having these conversations, not just with yourself, but also thinking about it in community, whether it's your local, your family itself or your local church and having a lot, kind of sparking a lot of these conversations because they're important. Uh, people outside the church are already asking these questions and the church needs to be doing the exact same thing. Yeah, no, that, that's that's good, and and I kind of want to dig into this just just a little bit more as we were talking about some of the alarming ways in which data is gathered, and and maybe thinking specifically, maybe addressing youth workers and, and parents. You know, as we're we're seeking to minister to uh, teens, we we know Instagram. TikTok, Snapchat, those are probably the most popular um, social media platforms that they're on. Are there any um, specific ways in which you would like to caution parents, uh, youth workers about, you know, preteens and teens utilizing these social media platforms in reference to kind of this gathering of data? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you have to kind of watch what you're posting. And I think that's it's it's easy to think that I'm just sharing this photo or this tweet or this snap with these friends or these followers, or I have a private account and not everybody can see it. Well, 
reality is, is maybe the public can't see it in that sense, but the companies have access to that data. And the reason they're able to offer these freemium uh, services, which are free to you in that sense of not having to pay for access, like a monthly access fee to use Instagram, they're utilizing a lot of the data uh, that's being collected on the things we post, the things we share, the things we like, the things we interact with in order to sell ads. And that's what really is the revenue generating aspect of a lot of these uh, social technologies. And so I think a lot of the questions we need to be thinking about, um, you don't take TikTok, for example, there's been considerable controversy around TikTok over the last six months, kind of throughout most of 2020, um, because of who has access to the data of TikTok and who creates these algorithms and for what purposes are they utilizing not only the algorithms themselves, but also the data that's being collected? Well, TikTok is owned currently uh, by ByteDance, which is a Chinese parent company. And that Chinese company has full access to all of the user data that's created in this platform. And so while so much of what's on the TikTok platform is very innocuous in the sense of it's fun, it's lighthearted, it's encouraging. And in the midst of the 2020 pandemic, um, it was kind of a lifesaver, kind of a lifeboat and life raft to be able to, it was a difficult time and we're all kind of locked up in our homes to be able to have fun and enjoy uh, connecting with others from across the globe. But we have to think of what's behind that. And what's behind that is that you have a Chinese Communist Party uh, who has full and unfettered access to that data. Because in, in the United States, that doesn't make a lot of sense because our data, our private companies and our federal government are very separate and distinct. But that's not the way it is throughout the world, specifically in China. And so that's one of the reasons I've raised the alarm kind of on TikTok specifically is because we need to know that the data and the pictures and the images that we're turning over are being used um, in some really crazy and many ways nefarious ways uh, by the Chinese Communist Party because they're taking facial data and they're using that to train algorithms that can be used not only to oppress certain people groups and uh, religious faiths across the world, but even being able to be utilized in warfare technology. So it's one of those things that when you step back and you think, well, I just have this app on my phone. And it's just some fun dance videos. Yes, that's true. But then you step back and realize that that data uh, is being used in hosts in millions of different ways. And some of those ways you might not agree with. You might not like the way that those technologies are being used or developed or deployed. And so I think that's where we need to take a more holistic and kind of full view of technology. And specifically when it comes to data and privacy to understand not only what are we receiving, but also what is the company receiving? How are they utilizing that data and are they upholding values that we care about and would want to be pursued and kind of spread throughout culture. Yeah, that, that's very helpful uh, to just help us yeah, uh, have some deeper discernment in how we, we utilize these. Because like you say, they seem innocent and fun, but th there is a lot behind there that should give us pause as we, we use them. Um, Jason, not too long ago, I, I saw some a YouTube commercial for an, uh, a robot called Moxie. It's by a company mm -hmm. Embodied. I don't know if you, you've seen that or not, but I was watching their little trailer for this new robot that's, you know, for, for children. And as I, I watched it, my reaction was, uh, this is tragic. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot of good that you could see from it, but I, I think the way that the 
uh, commercial showed is that parents were just kind of outsourcing their role as parents, that they they weren't even interacting with the child, that the robot became closer to the child than the parents were. Um, but possibly more sobering, as you bring up in your book, is the sensitive topic of, of sex robots. And this is, you know, an, an adult audience that we're, we're talking to. And I know this sounds insane to even have some kind of discussion, uh, but it, it's crazy that this is the world we're, we're growing up in and our kids are, are growing up in. And so uh, some of our listeners may not even be aware that this is a real thing that our world is being faced with, but what are some of those issues surrounding sex robots that you would just like to make Christians aware of? Yeah, a lot of these technologies and even talking about the Moxie robot that you mentioned earlier, that's not a sex robot. It's actually a learning robot mm -hmm. uh, for children. There are some good benefits of that type of technology. I mean, I even think of um, my sons have a, a little bit of a speech delay. And so it's been helpful. I've even seen some of the commercials where they're utilizing these robot technologies, kind of interactive technologies to help children with pronunciation or to help them learn or challenge them. I um, mean, you even see that in the commercial itself is the robots intentionally encouraging the child to invite a friend over and have a conversation. So like there's some kind of maybe redeeming elements, but there's mm -hmm. also a lot of um, kind of sadness and kind of out this outsourcing of what it means to be a parent and live in community with other flesh and blood human beings. And so that's, again, it gets to that complexity question. It's often so it's simple just to think of technology as simplistic in these times. Well, it's just a technology. It's just a tool or it's just a phone or it's just a robot. How big of a deal really is that? But you kind of step back and you realize that a lot of these technologies are shaping us and forming us in ways that are good, but also in ways that are really dehumanizing in ways that are not um, honoring the image of God and each other and encouraging us to be an embodied community with one another which I think is an interesting top uh, why that company is called embodied mm -hmm. um, the parent company of that moxie robot um, because in many ways it's the disembodiment of using these type of robots in that way and so we as parents we can utilize these tools and maybe that's a good opportunity or a good use for your family but you have to be really thoughtful in approaching how you utilize these technologies but then as you turn the kind of the page over to a lot of the manipulative, or corrosive kind of effects of technology, one of them is through the use of sex robots. And for most people, I think they're going to like think immediately, that's gross, that's disgusting, I can't believe someone would do that. That's probably not even that big a deal. It's just some kind of weird, nefarious use of these technologies, but it's a growing use of technology. And it shouldn't shock us in many ways because so many in our churches and our communities and maybe even our own families are enslaved or addicted to pornography. Well, this is the natural next step in kind of the progression of pornography. It goes from a casual look on the street, uh, kind of a longing, lustful look in our hearts to maybe it turns into an addiction on a smartphone or a smart device. But then when that 2D image fails to satisfy, which it will, it's not, it never, we were created for so much more for that embodied interaction of a man and wife and marriage for a lifetime, you see that dehumanizing effect of pornography. Well, it's just at mass scale when it comes to the, a lot of these sex robots. And while you might not and probably don't, and I hope you don't own or utilize one of these type of sex robots, we're all being kind of, we, the natural ways that uh, pornography shapes us and forms us is this kind of treating other people as simply objects 
dehumanizing them, thinking that they are there for our sexual gratification or our pleasure rather than this mutual connection and love um, in the covenant of marriage. And so with when the screen fails to satisfy, you move on to something else. And then that you move on to something else. And this could going from, you know, a 2D image to maybe a virtual reality. And that's something I really caution parents when you're utilizing a lot of these uh, virtual reality technologies to, to look at them because so many of them lack parental controls right now. That's something that I've been working with a lot of these companies on to encourage them to incorporate parental controls. Um, but as of right now, many of them don't. And so I think parents need to be aware of that um, as an aside. But you go from virtual reality to augmented reality, but then that still fails to satisfy. And so you want something more embodied, which is kind of what we're created to uh, to have and to experience as God's people. But then you kind of have this dehumanizing effect where it's an artificially intelligent meat robot or flesh robot uh, that's there that's there for a simple reason, for your pleasure, your satisfaction, which is really the opposite of what God has created sexuality to be, of the mutual kind of connection and love um, and honesty and openness that comes along with a sexual relationship within a marriage. And so technologies like this can be easily abused and misused. And we see that as one of the real prime examples is the rise in use of sex robots, where a lot of uh, people in kind of the secular media or uh, secular academia are even recommending the use of sex robots for those who might be older and lonely um, to have this kind of sexual output or this use of these sex robots. But even to those who... Um, are maybe single or wanting to kind of spice up their marriage and things like that is you can just see kind of the corrosive effects. And a lot of this just really spawns because so much of our technological innovation is on the back of the pornography industry. That was the growth, the fuel kind of that turned the internet into what it is in many ways is because of the growth of a lot of these kind of um, side parts of the internet um, in terms of uh, pornography online pornography and the use and the growth of that. And so it's something I think that parents um, and youth workers and pastors and leaders need to be aware of. Um, I'm not saying that tomorrow you're going to have to engage in kind of a counseling case about a sex robot, um, but you can naturally see this is kind of the next step or the next progression. And it's attractive to many people because you can have the pleasure and the gratification without the relationship, without the love and the sacrifice or the difficulties um, and so I think that's just really important for us to be thinking about and be aware of that a lot of these things are being talked about throughout our society and the church needs to be equipped and aware of in order to engage these things with a gospel-centered worldview uh, that says not only are we created in God's image to love him and to love our neighbor, but part of that is in a covenant relationship of a man and a woman for a lifetime is to be able to um, utilize that sexual relationship uh, in ways that honor God and love our neighbor and love our spouse as an embodied person where you have to sacrifice and it's not just about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think your chapter on that does really well of kind of just tracing out the progression of that. And I mean, as you said, I think there was testimony from someone in the book who even said, Hey, I can, you know, have this quote unquote relationship without any work, you know, something that laughs at all of my jokes and uh, things like that. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, an illustration of the, the the fallen human heart and, and mm -hmm. how it gets darker and darker. And so it's it's helpful to bring that up. Um, Jason, I know we're going to be wrapping this up before too long. You bring up 
uh, just the, the medical field and how there's so many amazingly good things that, that are happening with AI. And then, you, you know, you also get to the other end of the spectrum and, and talk about you know, transhumanism uh, as well and kind of bionics and even how um, I think you share in the book that people, there are some people who even want amputations of limbs because their bionics that are being uh, created are actually stronger than their real limbs and, and can be utilized in different ways. So maybe talk to us about kind of the spectrum of uh, the medical field and some of the good as well as the bad that are coming out there as well. Yeah, so many of our medical advances and these medical technologies are really good and useful. Um, my wife has been undergoing chemotherapy for a long time and even um, just recently said, hey, we have a new medicine that was just developed. Um, and we, we've seen really good proven effects for this. And it, you don't get as sick as you used to, or surgeries are not as invasive as they used to be. Um, or even thinking of my father who recently had a, a right leg amputation, and he's able to use a prosthetic. You can see so much, so much good that comes from the medical field. Um, but that some, a lot of that good often is overshadowed a lot of the, um, dehumanizing type of effects of these technologies and the way that they can be used. And so a lot of a really helpful category when we're engaging medical technology and specifically the use of AI in these technologies is what I deem as kind of uh, restorative uses of technology and then enhancement. Um, and a restorative use is my father had a, a, a art, arterial disease that caused where he had to have an amputation. And because of that, he was able to utilize a prosthetic to regain or to restore what was lost. And in many ways, we can utilize medical technologies to help push it back against the fall, push back against sin's corrosive and deadly effects on our society and in our world. Um, even I'm a person who wears glasses. And so even my glasses are a form of technology that helps to restore even what I was born with, which weren't very good eyes. Um, and so it helps me to be able to see clearer and to do the work that God has called me to do or gives my dad the ability to walk again, which was taken from him because of this disease and this effect of the fall. But the problem is, is that when we utilize these technologies, they can have a very dehumanizing effect where not only do we want to upgrade ourselves, this is that kind of terminology of transhumanism, which I think to most people kind of sounds like something like the transgender movement or something like that. But transhumanism is this idea of transcending our humanity. It's a really complex field. There are a lot of transhumanists on that totally disagree with one another. It's not a very unified movement per se, um, but the transhumanist movement is kind of this fundamental kind of understanding that we are not enough, which is a good recognition of humanity is that we're not gods in ourselves. And, but this idea that we need to upgrade ourselves or somehow we're not, we don't live up to our standard or we want to upgrade and enhance ourselves to have superhuman abilities. And so there can be this draw towards we want to be like God, which is really, if you go back to Genesis 3, the exact lie that, the, that Satan tempts Eve with is you can be like God if you do this. And a lot of times when we turn into technologies, we can utilize these technologies and these tools to play God, to be like God, to upgrade ourselves, to be God, to be more powerful, to be more omnipotent, to um, be more, uh, more than we really are and transcend uh, what they call as our meat suits, uh, which means that it's just our bodies. Our bodies aren't that valuable. They're not really the real us. 
that's really a key distinction often within the transhumanist movement is that your body is not you. You are your mind or your spirit or your heart, um, but your body is just a container. It's just a meat, meat suit for you. Um, but that's completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches about what it means to be human. And that's where you get back to that question once again when you engage these technologies is what does it mean to be human? Well, in terms of this transhumanist movement, so much of these medical technologies and this enhancement is we are embodied souls. We see this throughout the pandemic of this longing to be in community with one another. We're not just faces on a Zoom screen. That's one way that we can connect and stay uh, connected and hear the, the word preached and connect with others through these digital means. But this is a temporary season. But what we're really looking forward to is that embodied community with one another because our savior the perfect image of god was embodied himself he he took he took upon a humanity he took on flesh to be like us and in many ways and then when he was crucified on the cross he was you know crucified and buried but then he rose again in in a physical state and that's really where you this idea of the resurrection and you talk about in first corinthians 15 is that our bodies are infinitely valuable and important and will be restored when Jesus comes back. We will be embodied. Uh, we're not just going to be spirits in the sky playing harps on the, the fluffy clouds for the rest of eternity. Is we're No, we're going to be embodied people in resurrected bodies. And so one of the things that when we engage a lot of this transhumanist movement or even just medical technologies in general is we need to make sure that we're honoring and valuing the body as an essential part and element of who we are as created in God's image as Im has as image bearers is that we're mind and body we're embodied souls there isn't this dualism there isn't this splitting is that we're an embodied soul and that's exactly how God's created us and how he will redeem us hmm. well the, the book is the age of AI artificial intelligence and the future of humanity Jason I really appreciate you uh, coming on today taking the time to help us to, to think through uh, so many things. Again, I feel like we've hardly scratched the surface. There's a lot more, uh, but that's why people need to to pick up your book and, and check it out. But thanks for your time, Jason. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun.